So hopefully you get, you're getting your Bibles and going to the first chapter of John. We're in our series uh, going through John called Life in His Name, which is a key part of John's purpose for his writing and us reading this gospel, that we would, as he said in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in His name. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, <laughs> but have you ever been to a special event? Say, let's say a wedding or a funeral or, or a graduation party, and during the service or during the reception, um, people are asked to speak about their, their memories of the people who are getting married or the person who has died or the person graduating. And somebody gets up, and they grab the mic, and they begin to speak. And they introduce themselves, and they introduce their relationship with the person. And then they continue to talk about their accomplishments and what they've done for this person and how this is affecting them. And it seems that the memories that they are sharing seem to actually have very, very little to do with the people or do with the person or couple that are being celebrated or remembered. So as you're imagining this, or maybe for some of you, you're reliving this <laughs> um, from an event you attended, or maybe that even that you were the person who, um, who got up to that mic or you are the person um, that the party or the reception was thrown for, what's going across your mind and heart? If somebody gets up to the mic and to celebrate somebody else, they start talking about them, themselves. For that person, what's, this, what are the, what's that person really about? Who, are his, who or what is his or her testimony really about? Is it about celebrating the newlywed couple or the new grad or testifying to the character and work of the person who has just passed away? Or is their testimony really about themselves? Isn't it a really strange place when somebody has totally the wrong focus? Well, that's the question, it is, it, that's the question isn't it? We're always telling someone about someone or something. Who are we pointing to? Who are we talking about? When we're living life, whose life are we living? And the, the, the deeds and actions and the words that we are saying, who are they pointing to? Who are we saying is worthy? You know, we're jumping into the narrative portion of the Gospel of John this morning, and we're going to hopefully see that there is a character, a witness, a testimony that points to someone who surpasses all others. We're hopefully going to see this morning, and I hope that you will see this, is that the worthiness of Jesus leads to the witness of the humble. So, if you have your Bibles opened and to the first chapter of John, even if you don't, please stand as we read God's Word this morning. From John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 19. 
Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. You can have a seat. As we unpack this this morning, I want us to look at the words in this passage. And in fact, in any narrative in the Bible, where there is a story being told, where there's a written account of something, these words are significant. The words are placed where they are for a purpose. God intended to teach us something, and he is very, very good at putting the details and putting what details we need and in what order we need them. So that all that said, let's jump in here, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So there's a lot going on here, but in order for this to make sense for us, for us to start to understand this, we have to know what kind of time and what kind of place Jesus was entering into when he, as verse 14 of this chapter says, became flesh and dwelt among us. See, the nation of Israel had been, at this time, had been conquered by the Romans a couple centuries prior to this story. And despite Roman occupation and some of the liberties that the Romans granted the Jews, being a conquered people did not sit well with Israel, to put it mildly. With their own disposition as God's chosen people, and also the promises they saw in Scripture of God raising up a deliverer for them. That deliverer was not Rome. And the occupation of Rome said to them that they were near the end of time when God would send his Messiah to rescue them and to rule over the throne of David. So during the course of this occupation, several people made huge claims for Messiahship and gathered huge followings and tried to start rebellions and revolts, and they were all suppressed by the Roman authorities. If there's one thing Romans can't stand, it was a riot. But there seemed to be just this continual fever across Israel, almost like when they were slaves in Egypt, looking for hope, looking for someone to deliver. So on to that scene comes a guy named John, we call him John the Baptist. The Gospel of John that we're studying doesn't say a whole lot about him, 
The other Gospels do, and I would encourage you to read them. But what we are told is that from chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came, to bear, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And it seems that this John is becoming pretty popular. And great numbers of Jewish crowds are coming to him. They're they're being baptized and they're confessing their sins. And he's proclaiming a loud message, you can find in the book of Mark, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when the religious leaders of the day get wind that John is doing this outside of Jerusalem, not in the temple, not in Jerusalem, not even on the right side of the Jordan, they get suspicious. Is this another false messiah or false prophet that is going to lead people away and get people in trouble? In one sense, the fact that the Jews sent a delegation to John is good. That they want to vet someone who claims to be doing the Lord's work. Cool. But on the other hand, they are sending an official delegation because Jesus and his plan, which includes John, are not fitting their expectations. And for the rest of this gospel account, unrealistic expectations about the Christ are broken again and again for this group called the Jews. Jesus surpasses expectations. So all this to say, the Jews that are sent to here to John aren't really there because they're curious. They're there because they're suspicious. And they kind of want John to stop what he's doing because he's creating quite a stir. And actually, this is why they get so frustrated with him in this passage. Hopefully you can pick that up. Is This is the testimony of John. When Jew, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So this is what I love. I absolutely love narrative in the Bible, stories in the Bible. This is not a, hey, nice to see you at the Ag Expo. What's your name? This is a, what are you doing here? If the temperature in the desert wasn't hot at this point, before this, the temperature sure got hotter as soon as they started questioning. Look how John responds. Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Jesus surpasses expectations. They had expectations about John potentially being the Christ, and Jesus is going to blow them all away. The Jews didn't ask John that question, are you the Christ? But John can see right through them, and he knows that's what they're really asking. What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. (laughs) He's breaking all of their expectations here. He's testifying by leaving them hanging. They thought that he was someone important. And they thought that if he was doing stuff like this, gathering a lot of crowds, and that he, that he would be doing something important. And they start getting exasperated because Jesus' plan through John is surpassing their expectations. They expected John to be somebody important. So they ask again, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. 
That is to say, the people who sent us are important, so you better fess up if you're not important as to what's going on out here. What do you say about yourself? They ask. What do you say about yourself? How would you answer that question? Frame it this way. If you've been sent by God, as John says that John the Baptist has been, back in verse 6, if you've been appointed as the guy to make Jesus known, which is we'll get to it next week in verse 31, and if you are guaranteed to gather a bunch of followers by a prophecy given to your dad, who is a priest, by an angel of the Lord, this is all in the other, all in the other gospel accounts, if, you, if all that is on you, and you've been, you are that kind of person, how would you answer these obnoxious skeptics? People who don't, don't begin their quest to find Jesus in a morally neutral vacuum, but seem opposed to his plan and his arrival right from the get-go. How would you, if you were John, answer them? Well, the temptation John faces right at this moment is huge. Those of us who've been in the church for a while, we read this and we think, well, of course John answered that way. He's John. Well, that is, we know that John is actually somebody very important in the plan of redemption. Jesus himself even calls John Elijah who is to come in the book of Mark. So when these Jews ask John, what do you say about yourself? He could have been the most powerful man in Israel and potentially in the known world at that time by answering, you bet I'm the Christ. Or, yep, I'm Elijah. Or, I am the prophet Moses talked about in Deuteronomy. You should listen to me, just like Moses said. There is temptation for power here. And even a holy guy like John can be tempted. But how does John answer? John answers first in the negative, verse 20 through 21. He says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. And are you the prophet? He said, no. And then he answers in the affirmative. Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. How does he respond to them? How does he respond to that temptation? He says, basically, Jesus surpasses me. Jesus surpasses ourselves. This, is, this response he gives is only possible because John believes that his life and his purpose in life are not the be-all, end-all, but that Jesus is, and Jesus' life is the be-all, end-all. John is not the Savior, not for himself, not for them. Do you know how freeing that is? Do you know how much of a burden John 
didn't have to bear in not being the Christ? Are you bearing this burden right now? Trying to be your own savior? Or trying to be somebody else's savior? But you never actually can be, no matter how hard you try? Have you noticed this before, verse 23? John doesn't even give, give them his own name. Sure, they, they know who he is, but he does, in answering them, he doesn't even give them his own name. What does he say? He calls himself the voice. Even if he is the greatest of those born among women, which the Lord Jesus actually says he is, or even if he is Elijah heralding Christ, even with all of that, John's just a voice, and it's all centered around Jesus. The only reason he's a voice is that the Lord's way needs to be made straight. And there's something else here going on that Jesus will make in his ministry that will highlight who he is, so we need to pay attention to it now. And when Jesus highlights who he is, in several places in the book of John, he gives two words that preface it, everything, preface those things. He says, I am. And that statement refers back to the name God gave the Israelites back in the book of Exodus and the, as a name with, by which they would recognize him and understand him. I am. So Jesus says in the book of John later, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just to name a few. So do you see in this passage how John witnesses to Jesus in his answers? Who are you? I am not the Christ. What then? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? And he finally just gets kind of fed up with him. He's like, no. John's life is about Jesus. <laughs> because Jesus surpasses him. Even when he is further questioned about what he's doing in the desert, John again points to Jesus, not to himself. I baptize with water, verse 26. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John takes on the identity of a mere voice and the identity of the lowest slave when compared with Jesus. Remember, this verse 19, that this is the testimony of John. But isn't it amazing that John's testimony isn't really about John? What about our testimonies? We use this word in the church to talk about what happened when we came to faith in Christ, when we came to believe in his name, when God saved us. Some of our stories are like action-packed comic books where it's just crazy how some of us came to faith. While others seem pretty, pretty tame. I was raised in a Christian home, and a Sunday school teacher taught me the Bible and told me about Jesus, and I believed it. 
But however your story shakes out, however, however amazing or small it might seem in the, in the eyes of the worldly standards, what has happened people coming to faith is nothing short of a miracle. John would have no testimony apart from Jesus, and we wouldn't either. And here, John's testimony is what John says about Jesus by both his words and his actions. And John should not be unique in this. So when you give a testimony, when you give your testimony, which you should be, and which you actually are if you are living and breathing, who's the focus of your testimony? Well, we'll start here. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you're not saved, and your testimony is about you. Let's just get that out on the table. Your life is saying that you or something other than the true Savior is the Christ of your life. And that is a false testimony that will not stand in the court of God when he comes to judge the world. So this is a warning to you. And an opportunity for you to believe. But, if you do claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, it's the same question. Who's the focus of your testimony? Does your testimony of Christ, uh, does your testimony of coming to Christ sound like Jesus is such a blessed person to have an awesome person like me believe in him? Or does it sound like I get to live in the presence of the Lord God Almighty because he shed his blood for me? who was a traitor of God, who blew me away in grace and gave me the right to become a child of God. In believing, who's the focus of your continued testimony? Is it your life and and you do what you want when you want? Or is it his life? And he knows what's best. You following what he wants, when he wants. I went on a date with my wife this this last week. And we got into a bit of a heated discussion about some things. That's a.k.a. argument and conflict. (laughs) And I recall saying some pretty holy stuff about how right it is to emphasize God's grace and his goodness to us. All the while, withholding that same grace and goodness from her with my life and the way I was talking with her. I was pointing to myself, not to Jesus. And she, by God's grace, called the hypocrisy out. 
And I was given a chance, again, by God's loving kindness and grace, through her to confess and repent. I needed Jesus when he saved me. I needed Jesus in order to live a holy life, not just use holy words. And I need Jesus today to testify to you that his word and his example in John is right on with how he surpasses me and you. The worthiness of Jesus leads to the humility of our witness. He surpasses our expectations. He surpasses ourselves. And thirdly, Jesus surpasses our works. I am the voice, John said. Verse 23, of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He's confessing, not just that he's not the Christ, not that, not merely that he's the voice, but he's confessing that Jesus surpasses his works because he quotes the prophetic word which the Son of God has inspired. And Isaiah gave this prophecy several hundred years before John or Jesus showed up. What John is about is so much bigger than John. And what John's doing, let's look at this really quick. This passage in John, that John quotes from is in Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 3. He says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every hill and mountain may be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What John was doing was hugely important. In his day, just as in our day, there were people without hope. Who weren't looking forward to the Lord coming. Who weren't even given that news that he would be coming. And there were also people full of hope. But full of themselves and hoping in themselves. And they needed to be humbled. But what's more important? The road that the king shows up on or the king himself? Even the book of Hebrews points this out when it says in chapter 3, verse 3 through 6, For Jesus has been counted more worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. In his fulfilling prophecy here, John, by emphasizing the Lord and calling himself an unnamed voice, is scoring pretty low on the Jews' important rating. And we're given a little further insight as to why here in verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now, this doesn't tell us that all the Jews who had been sent, 
who had sent the priests and Levites were Pharisees, but it does help us understand that at least some were Pharisees. And this is a really important deal. These guys are going to show up a lot in the book of John. The Pharisees considered themselves the more conservative, the more orthodox, the more holier-than-thou group of Judaism, often going into great detail about how a Jew ought to keep the commands of Moses. They weren't just holy, they were holier. So if someone is doing ministry out of scope, they were pretty ready to pounce on it. So here John is, a guy claiming to be nobody, baptizing in the wilderness. And for the Pharisees, for the Jews, unimportant people don't have the authority to baptize. Why are you baptizing then if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, even though none of those roles were tied with baptism in the Old Testament? And unbaptism itself was not really an Old Testament practice. It may have some roots in the Jewish system of ritual cleansing and consecration of oneself to worship. And even for the Pharisees, baptism was a relatively new custom, typically associated with non-Jews who wanted to become Jews. They're called proselytes. And to show that they were ready to identify with the Jewish people in Judaism, they were required to rid themselves of their Gentile ways by immersing themselves in a body of water. And then here's a non-Pharisee out here baptizing in the wilderness. And if you add insult to injury, John is doing something even more. He's doing something almost unthinkable. He's having Jews baptized. And not baptizing themselves, but him doing the baptism. And it's a baptism of repentance. And so any good Jew would ask, why in the world would a Jew, who is already part of the chosen people of God through Abraham, need to be baptized to prepare for the Messiah. Aren't we righteous enough? And what John was saying was that the Jews weren't ready for Christ. And so he was baptizing in water so that those who did get baptized would identify with not just Jews, but a repentant people, not an already righteous people. But when John is asked about his authority to baptize, he says, I baptize with water. That is, this is a symbol, guys. This is a sign that points to something greater. And you're getting hung up on the sign. The Jews are so wrapped up around the axle by the unimportant John performing water baptism on Israelites that they are missing the bigger reality that Jesus surpasses our works. Look here in verse 26. He says, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. In the other gospel accounts, John follows the I baptize with water, but he who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. But the Apostle John doesn't record that here. He records that John the Baptist is to bear witness about Jesus' surpassing worth because of who he is, not simply how he baptizes. And Jesus is right there. In fact, it's argued that he's already on the scene. So when he says, among you stands one you do not know, Jesus it may literally be there. 
And these guys are getting sidetracked by John doing something that is out of order. John's baptism was right and good. Let's, let's, let's not get, get miss that. But the Jews were trusting in their own righteousness and got hung up on lowly John doing good works and calling people to admit that they weren't righteous of themselves. Among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You know, John's works, as good and righteous as they were, when compared to the greatness and worthiness of Jesus, there is nothing, less than nothing. The rabbis of the, of the time actually had a teaching that the, the disciples of a rabbi, that is, the followers of a Jewish teacher, could serve their rabbi in a variety of ways to help him out. But they were not to stoop so low as to untie the shoes of their teacher. That act was reserved for the lowest slave. But John here says that when it comes to Jesus, John is unworthy to serve Christ in the way the lowest servant would serve his master. His baptism of water is less than untying sandals when it comes to the Son of God. Do you know what this means? It means that Jesus doesn't, doesn't need your works in order to be considered great. And it also means that you don't need to be great in order for Jesus to be known as great through you and your works. This book of the Bible, again and again, calls us to look to Jesus, believe in Jesus, to trust his finished work on our behalf instead of trusting that our works somehow make us worthy. That's being our own Christ, relying on our works. And if John the Baptist considered himself lower than the slave who untied shoes, let us not think too highly of ourselves. Lest we miss Jesus in our own inflated opinion of ourselves and our works. Even when he's right among us. the works which we as Christians are called to do, including baptizing and getting baptized, they're, they're good things, are meant to direct attention to Jesus and his worthiness. Not the worthiness of ourselves, nor the worthiness of the works. The worthiness of Jesus leads to the witness of the humble. And we witness to him as he surpasses our expectations, ourselves, and our works. Who are we pointing to with our words? Who are we pointing to with our lives? Are we more interested in telling how great we are or how bad we've got it at Jesus' party? Or are we, by God's grace, more like John? We humbly point to the word became flesh and proclaim that he is worthy. 
And God has grace for us wherever we are this morning for that. And he calls us, as John did, to believe in the worthy Jesus. Every step of the way, John proclaimed who is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And do you know how John did that? He was Christ-like. He believed Jesus, and he believed Jesus was worthy. And in fact, what allowed John to confess and not deny, but confess freely that he wasn't Jesus, was that by believing in Jesus and trusting Jesus as worthy, John became so much like Jesus that he could recognize his humility and Jesus' worthiness. The oppositional Jews, the ones holding on to their own savior status by their own righteousness, they missed it. And we are given this story so that by God's grace, we would hear John's testimony about, as he says, he came as a witness, in verse 6, to bear witness about the light. That we would embrace Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, who is worthy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are worthy. And thank you that you... In your worthiness, show salvation to sinners such as us. And thank you, Lord, that we we cannot save ourselves, but you give us your grace to believe. We can believe that you are who you say you are. Thank you for John. And thank you, Lord, that he's not Jesus. But thank you that we can see you through his testimony. And I do ask, Lord, for your help day by day, Lord, that we, as followers of you, would have and bear a testimony that shows and demonstrates how great you are. Please keep us humble. Thank you for hope that you can save And that you have done the work on our behalf. And that we get to be free. And to confess freely, I'm not the Christ, but you are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being a God who is so faithful. So true. And so loving and so good. We pray all these things in your good name, Lord Jesus. Amen.